2 Corinthians 5, 16-21. Please pause the recording now if you'd like to look it up and read along. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. The text for our Gospel Proclamation comes from the epistle of 2 Corinthians 5, 16-21 that I just finished reading for you and serves as the basis of our theme for the fourth Sunday in Lent, Finding Ourselves by Faith. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all. That those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. This is really where the second letter to the church in Corinth begins today. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues with our passage that you heard before and tells us, we don't know anyone outside the context of Christ dying for them. Now that begs the question, what were we before Christ died for us? And what are we now, since we believed that Jesus died for us? I think it's easy to see what we were before we knew and believed that Jesus died for us. In fact, we have examples all over our culture and around the world of what that looked like. And it starts with how the world sees Jesus apart from faith in Jesus as God, Lord, and Savior. First, Jesus is considered by many to simply be a great religious leader, maybe an ascetic, a rabbi, a prophet, and for the Jehovah's Witnesses, an angel. Not God, not our Savior. So at the end of the day, he had some good ideas that most people will agree are worth living by. And that sums up what we knew before we knew and believed in Jesus as God, our Lord and Savior. We were people that thought we could live a good life and be justified by our actions as worthy of praise or something to that effect. The standard is all over the place, but a general rule is that if we're not Hitler, then we must be good. Oh, the temptation is so strong to look at our lives and justify how we got it right and that we know what we are doing. 
And we could even be a shining example if we could just get enough followers so we can be an internet influencer. Then we are brutally reminded that virtual examples are no examples at all. We must use facial filters, auto-tune our music, and hawk products that don't do what someone will pay us to say they do. Fabrication, misrepresentation, and non-authentication is what we really do, and deep down we know we can't justify ourselves at all. Therefore, we live according to Christ instead of according to the flesh. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is infinitely weak. We are now eternal livers in Jesus. And we are reminded of the words of Paul in his letter to the church in Ephesus. After all is said and done on any given day, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Like Joe, a member of one of our neighboring congregations. He knew all too well his sins and the mistakes he made living according to the sinful flesh. Rather than living for Christ. A convert to Christianity late in his life, he had plenty of time to do what he regretted and never wanted repeated. But now he lives in the Lord. In his case, you know that much of his previous existence is on his mind when he comes to communion, for he can scarcely approach the altar of the Lord without eyes wet from weeping every time he partakes of the body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. You know, his life reminds me of another in Scripture who likewise wept in the presence of her Lord in Luke chapter 7. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. To the one who knows the bounteous goodness that Jesus showered down upon their troubled souls 
on the emotions of their heart can indeed overwhelm them and manifest with tears of gratitude for undeserved grace. For the rest of us who have been baptized into this life and lived in the church most of our lives, we may not have had such an experience as these. And Paul speaks to that reality as well. For what we see is not the reality. What people do no longer justifies us. Quite frankly, it never did. We just didn't know it until we knew and believed in Jesus, our God and Savior from sin. Now we know it's not our actions, good works, or our best intentions that justify us before God. It is God alone that justifies by declaring us just as though we had no sin. We can't do that. We can't show that. We can't even begin to conceive of it. For Christ must be in us to do his will through us and lead us to where we need to be for the sake of his kingdom here on earth. Romans 5 helps us see why. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And Ephesians 2 adds, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And if the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This transformation truly comes by the work of God alone and cannot be calculated or estimated in human terms and actions. I'll never forget when I was in college how I saw this transformation come literally out of thin air for a girl I knew by the name of Christine. Christine was what I would loosely call an acquaintance at college at the University of Nebraska. We were thrown together by circumstance, and that was how I came to know her in my freshman year. And by circumstance, I mean that I was from Colorado, and she was from California. And because most of the students in Nebraska were from Nebraska, and most of them were from towns smaller than Eustis, we were definitely the oddballs out. Not because anyone was mean to us, mostly just because they didn't understand and avoided us. Now, I didn't understand Christine either. After all, she was from California. And being from Colorado at that time, we didn't care for Californians much. In fact, we had a saying in Colorado in the late 80s that was put on bumper stickers that said, Don't Californicate Colorado. But I understood her better than most of the other students in the dorm. So I would let her sit with me if she had no one else to sit with. I didn't either, so I figured it was better to have someone to sit with rather than dine alone. And I got to tell you, I regretted not dining alone every time she joined me. She was condescending, arrogant, disparaging to Nebraskans. Yes, I know they were not overly friendly to me, but 
They weren't rude, and I did like being there with them in spite of that. So when she ran them down, it really irritated me. All I could think to myself was, if it's so bad, why did you come to school here? Well, she went on like that for about five months, and I started dining at other dorms because I couldn't take it anymore. Since I was in marching band, I had managed to make some friends to eat with by that time and no longer had to sit alone. So I kind of lost touch with her other than seeing her in passing in the dorms. She would ask where I'd been and I would make all the lame excuses. Oh, I had a class across campus. Oh, I had late rehearsal. Oh, I, I ate over at Selleck. You know, I'm trying to get into that dorm next year. Oh, I got that bag lunch because I couldn't get back for lunch. No outright lies. Just not telling her the real reason I wouldn't eat with her anymore. Which I guess amounts to the same thing, I suppose, when I think about it. So I didn't see much of her until the day she joined a Bible study I attended in the door. She had come at the invitation of Kevin, who was also a participant, and shared classes with her as they had the same major. And I could tell immediately that he was just being nice. But she was completely into him. Still rude Christine to the rest of us, but boy was she sweet on him. Then, over the course of her attendance, you could tell the gospel was new to her, and I began to see Christine completely transform from rude Christine to delightful Christine. For the first time ever since meeting her, I enjoyed her presence, started joining her back at the old dining hall again, and was completely obliterated by her transformation. If ever there was an example of it isn't me but Christ who is in me, Christine was it. She really got involved in the Bible fellowship, joined the church affiliated with it, and became what I would call the biblical definition of an ambassador for Christ right there on the college campus. Now she and Kevin eventually really hit it off, and as far as I know we're on the path to getting married when Marcy and I left after we were married. It was like she was transformed from her former self to be this vessel for Christ, to bear witness to Christ in all things, and I got to see it happen in real time. Maybe you have experienced the gospel like this. Maybe you are like me, where you don't have a memory of ever being without the gospel in your life. Whatever the case may be, you are likewise ambassadors for Christ in this world. You were redeemed by Christ, just like Romans and Ephesians says you were. You were brought into a community without Christ where you, as an embodiment of Christ, stick out. And you stick out because Christ will, if he has not already, use you to find a Joe, find a Christine, or just plain find yourself by faith to help the community of Christ grow for the glory of God and the salvation of even more for his sake. Now, may that peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus always. Amen.